This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Hongwei Bao about his new book, Queer Comrades, Gay Identity and Tonja Activism in Post-Socialist China. It came out this year, 2018, with the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies Press. This book is a thoughtful exploration of gay identity and activism in China, primarily through the term and identity Tongzhe, which means comrade, and in more recent decades has also come to mean gay. Based on ethnographic research and a solid base of theory, Hong Weibao explores queer identity, activism, and governmentality in China today from a cultural studies perspective, covering a variety of topics from queer spaces and identities in Shanghai, to conversion therapy diaries, to queer filmmaking. Homeway Bao was a pleasure to speak with, and I hope you enjoy the interview and the book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Homeway Bao about his new book, Queer Comrades, Gay Identity and Tonja Activism in Post-Socialist China. Homeway, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in media studies at the University of Nottingham, UK. And I graduated from the University of Sydney, Australia in 2011. And the book was actually based on my PhD thesis completed then. And of course, I updated a bit, actually, since graduation. So that's pretty much it. And my research areas are mainly gay identity, queer activism, and queer filmmaking in contemporary China. Great. Uh, And how did you come to uh, work on this uh, dissertation and then book, Queer Comrades? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a long story. I can tell you a lot. But, uh, well, to make it brief, it's just I started actually a research project as a PhD. I started a research project on gay identity and queer activism, but I didn't know where to start. One thing that captured my attention immediately was that uh, people seem to use the word 同志 a lot. 同志 thus became the key word for my inquiry which used to mean comrade, and now it is used by gays and lesbians in China to refer to sexual minorities themselves. So how fascinating, I thought. So what about writing a history of 
同志。But then I realized that this is actually not a linguistic project. It's more than linguistics. It's more than linguistic change. So I'm starting actually to write about the different types of queer activism that took place in China at the moment, at the time. So that was how the project started. The project evolved from a linguistic project to a project on gay identity and queer activism in contemporary China. Yeah, and we'll definitely be getting to some of the different meanings for Tongzhi um, when we get to uh, your second and third chapters. So we'll wait a second for that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about um, how you chose the different topics for your book and uh, when and where you were conducting your research? Okay, so... The PhD thesis and subsequently the book actually was quite a coincidental project because at that time I simply didn't know actually what to write about. So I tried to analyze all kinds of materials I find from medical documents to legal reports to gay fiction and films, etc. And later, after I've done my fieldwork in Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou, and I had more actually to write about. So the project is pretty much an amalgamation of all the different things that I have done and all the different aspects about queer culture in contemporary China were put together and trying to make out what gay identity and queer activism in contemporary China is like. My fieldwork research sites actually are in three big cities, Guangzhou, Beijing, and uh, Shanghai. Obviously, I'm writing about urban gay identities and uh, they are the most conspicuous at the time and even now. So I thought that uh, this is actually where gay identity becomes the most obvious and most prominent. So what if that we start from there and see how the gay identity in other parts of China take shape? Great. And you explained that a bit in your introduction. Uh, so I wonder now if we could turn to uh, your next chapter. Uh, which is called Imagined Cosmopolitanism, Queer Spaces in Shanghai. So obviously this chapter focuses on Shanghai and several different queer spaces there and also different Chinese terms used for um, homosexual or gay. Uh, so I wonder if you could walk us through those three different spaces and, and different terms that are used in Shanghai. Oh, that's really complicated, but... Well, speaking of that, actually, I'm the, I, it was actually my first time, at that time in 2008, my first time to go to Shanghai as a researcher, and I was introduced to interesting people and interesting organizations, etc. And I saw different events and attended different uh, public culture events. And I was fascinated by how cosmopolitan Shanghai is. But meanwhile, I also felt that oh, wait, there's something actually you know, the, the, that is, isn't that right, which is actually, it is a very classed society. I mean, the gay community is a very classed community in that there are, of course, I mean, those cosmopolitan and global Western type of global gay identity, but there are also local indigenous and working class and even peasant, actually, homosexuals, which have got absolutely nothing to do with the Western gay identities and gays and lesbians who actually go to those commercial gay venues. 
So this actually triggered my thought. How much importance does class play actually in the gay subject formation in a global city? And interestingly, now actually, uh, ten years have passed since I conducted my field work for the first time in Shanghai. The Shanghai LGBT Pride uh, is actually having its ten-year anniversary. I'm surprised to find that yes, a lot has changed, but uh, there are something that stays the same, which is that uh, actually the class structure and different stratification of queer spaces and queer identities have got intensified rather than rather than decreased. So this is something really fascinating. I'm amazed by how global capitalism and state policy, as well as creative industries in the city, have constructed queer desires. But meanwhile, this queer desire is at the same time inclusive and exclusive. Everybody tries to say that, oh, we are cosmopolitan, we are urban, etc. And we love each other. However, this love and this cosmopolitanism has a condition, which is that it is based upon certain class dispositions and imaginaries. So that's how this chapter comes about. Yes, and uh, in the end, you come up to these three uh, terms and identities, right? Gay, which is more associated with a international or transnational kind of uh, identity or politics, uh, particularly Western. Uh, you talk about tongzhi, and then you also talk about tongxing uh, lian. Could you talk about that third one just a little bit? Okay, sure, sure. So. The reason, actually, for me to identify those different types of gay identity is what, again, starting from linguistic reasons. When I I met people, actually, and they identify themselves with different terms, some would say I'm gay, not even translating the term gay into Chinese. Well, some people consider themselves as and they reckon that they have nothing to do with the gay or queer, etc. So first, that comes as a linguistic inquiry. But then I realized that, in fact, they're not just different types of terms. They're different types of people. If we consider them to be different identities that people identify with, that different discourses construct. So that becomes actually different types of sexual identities constructed by a variety of discourses. And through my research, I also found out that, uh, in fact, actually, they went to different spaces. So in other words, actually, different spaces and identities are implicated with each other. So I'm trying to delineate this connection between space and identity without actually falling into geographical determinism or structural determinism. I see how people negotiate with their identities and with spacialities in a global city. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, without becoming uh, deterministic in terms of geography, you do locate differences between these spaces and identities and also uh, some major differences, at least in perceptions and presentation uh, between the major cities you study, right? So Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Beijing. Can you talk a little bit about um, those uh, differences across those three cities? 
Sure, sure. I'm, I'm actually more interested in how people describe those differences. Mm. Whenever I met people from each city, I would ask, what's the difference? Or is there any difference at all, actually, between those different cities, etc.? And they gave different answers. And one of the common version or descriptions are gays and lesbians in Beijing are very political and they actually do the kind of real political activism. They ask for rights, they confront the government, etc. So as demonstrated with a lot of well, political activism, and even the queer film festival in Beijing becomes more political than film festivals in other cities. Well, Shanghai as a global city actually seems to be very relaxed. Gays and lesbians there actually, they enjoy their good lifestyle and then they eat good food and community organizing is pretty much like organizing great events where everybody had fun. And then in Guangzhou, people seem to be concerned more about local issues and family issues. They seem to be really obsessed with what is good family and how do we come out to our parents and how do we actually form good families actually and find our partners, etc. So there are certainly actually conceptions about regional and local differences. I'm not subscribing to those differences, but I'm really interested in how actually different national and transnational discourses as well as local discourses constructed these differences. For instance, Beijing as a political center of China and probably the political suppression is likely to be higher and people can feel actually the government pressure all the time. So therefore a particular type of politicized identity came into being. And then in Shanghai, it's very much consumer-oriented and people are very much into middle-class lifestyle and the gay identity there is predominantly middle-class and lifestyle-oriented. And then in Guangzhou, the P-flag China, which is uh, parents and friends, the gays and lesbians, etc., are doing great jobs. So that's why that family issue and friends, etc., actually appears to be more prominent in the city of Guangzhou. And Guangzhou also actually considers itself to be a a political city far from political center. So that also creates a lot of space for community and families. Okay, if you have anything to add to this discussion that emerges in chapter two, please feel free to add. Um, otherwise, I think let's turn to chapter three, uh, where you really get into a discussion of the term Tongzhi and also uh, its history and genealogy um, and how it's uh, tied up in different kinds of uh, debates and discussions. So first, could you uh, maybe tell us about this genealogy a little bit. Okay, that's a whole chapter's content. <laughs> I think let's skip actually the twenty or the most part of the twentieth century, especially actually in revolutionary period. People know that to comrade, uh, country refers to comrade, which is kind of socialist, revolutionary camaraderie, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'll skip this part. And I'll choose an interesting, actually, when I see a transition period, our milestone of Tongzhi's querying. So, which is in 19, uh, 1989, uh, Edward Lin, Lin Yihua was uh, the director for the Hong Kong Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. 
or in the inaugural edition of the festival. At that time, he and the other members of the organizing team were thinking about how to name the festival. They want to have a queer film festival, but they don't want to use terms in English such as gay, lesbian, queer. They don't even want to use actually uh, Chinese terms such as 同性恋, because 同性恋, homosexual is a very stigmatized term. It was used actually during gay people's uh, history of uh, pathologization and criminalization. It doesn't have good connotation. So what is a word that people can use that is Chinese and that doesn't have many negative associations. So Tongzhi comes to the discussion. And everybody actually loves the term Tongzhi, comrade, because comrade in Chinese originally means sharing the same goals. And gays and lesbians are exactly people who share similar hobbies, interests, and goals. So this is actually quite interesting use, and everybody likes the idea. And this idea also articulates a kind of Chineseness of gay identities, so we Chinese gay people are different from the uh, your Western guys, etc. So that's how it started. So the first edition of the Gonga Hong Kong Gay and Lesbian Film Festival started it's uh, as a Tongzhi Film Festival or Tongzhi Film Unit. And the term quickly actually spread to all the other Sinophone spheres, such as Taiwan, diasporic Chinese regions, etc. And eventually, it was actually introduced back to mainland China, where the term actually, or in its revolutionary use, came from. And there was a little bit of political subversion in it, because actually, this is, in a way, quite interesting, the old sexless uh, type of comrade subjectivity is ridiculed and replaced by the very fashionable young type of gay identity. So that's how everything started. So I think this moment is probably interesting and worth mentioning in the whole history of its years. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for that. Um, perhaps we can also delve into maybe one or two of the other topics that you bring up in this chapter um, where Tongzhou comes into play. So uh, perhaps uh, with uh, the pretty fighter debate, which includes... Uh, this, you know, reaction to the Tongzhi identity uh, from other uh, sexual minorities in, in China. Would you like to talk about that or perhaps the introduction of queer studies, one of those? Oh, sure, sure, definitely. That's also an interesting moment as I see it in China's, in contemporary China's gay history. Because before 2011-ish, Terms such as Tongzhi, queer, Tongxinglian are used interchangeably by many people, actually, without much differentiation. Nor was there much differentiation between the so-called gay identity politics and the anti-identitarian queer politics. But around the year 2011, actually, so a lesbian 
for Lala in Chinese actually articulated actually really strongly that we're not happy with their identity politics. And Tongzhi is used now actually as a form of patriarchal and uh, discriminatory term, which potentially excludes other sexual minorities and gender minorities, such as lesbians, transgender, etc. So they try to actually use the term kuar to identify themselves. This was the moment when kuar identity, then queer identity actually starts to depart from the gay identity and tongzhi identity. When tongzhi identity was constructed as a identity politics that has got what? Uh, 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 to do with, for instance, the coming out politics, the Stonewall type of confrontational politics. And sure enough, there was historical reason, actually. At this time, because of HIV AIDS and the influence of uh, uh, transnational LGBT movements, a lot of people in the community actually subscribed to the type of gay identity politics. And other people are not happy with gay identity politics. So this was the milestone, as I see, actually, or the critical moment when the two types of politics have been demarcated in China's queer movement. So that was an important moment. And this is all tied up, too, with uh, uh, NGOs in China and uh, funding for various NGOs as well. Could you explain that situation briefly? Uh, yes, again, that's a complex, uh, complex story. It has to do with HIV AIDS ap- epidemic, actually. So at the in the late 1990s, actually, HIV AIDS was discovered, so to say, actually discovered in China. And it was not until the early 2000s that Chinese government officially recognized the existence of HIV AIDS in China and a accepted uh, global funds or HIV funds from different international organizations. And international organizations poured huge amounts of money actually onto China. Of course, one of the conditions is that they are saying that, yes, we want you actually to stop and to prevent HIV AIDS, but also we want you to to help actually build up uh, you know, queer communities, actually, as a part of what well, sexual rights or gay rights, etc. So all these funds, actually, most of these funds have some sort of ideological agenda as well. The Chinese government at that time wanted the money, but didn't want the imposition of the Western agenda. So what it did was that it basically set up certain NGOs of itself or government-funded NGOs or gongos, which listens to them. And then there are a lot of real grassroots NGOs, actually, which are excluded from the funding scheme. And complicated, uh, uh, com- uh, more complicatedly, actually, they only focus on gay men because supposedly only gay men actually suffer from HIV AIDS, etc. So lesbians and transgender people are pretty much actually excluded from this scheme. So at this time, there was actually a very strong voice within the gay community saying that gay men are most important and we should actually get more funding attention. And other people say, no, the gay community should actually think about its diversity and differences. But meanwhile, we also should actually think about more 
interesting goals such as actually community culture building identity building and rights advocacy etc rather than actually having medical tests and uh, testing people's hivs etc so that was how everything started there was different roles actually within gay community not only between different sexual and gender groups but also between different types of ngos the gungos and the real grassroots ngos etc so it was actually in this chaotic scene that uh, the discussion of pretty fighters or Pongji politics started to emerge. Let's turn now to chapter four, which is called How to Transform the Self Lessons from Conversion Therapy. Uh, so here you're looking at a more concrete example of how sexual subjectivity was politicized in the past. So you, you look at this case study of conversion therapy um, uh, from this 2005 Chinese book on the topic. And so this was something that was happening in China in the 1980s and the 1990s. And you, and now as well, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you tie it into a discussion of uh, the modernization project uh, in China at the time. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about this chapter and um, the diary entries that you end up looking at uh, from these subjects? Uh, what do they reveal about the self uh, in post-Mao China? Yeah, let me share you with you some anecdotes, actually. So I started, actually, my research by reading, actually, English literature and Chinese literature on Chinese homosexuality. And one of the book, interesting books that I came across was called Studies of Chinese Homosexuality. And that was a fascinating book because half of the book was about conversion therapy, was about how to treat homosexuals, how to turn them from straight to gay, etc. And this doctor, actually, a medical expert from Nanjing Yikada, Nanjing Medical University called Lu Longguang, he actually, actually saw hundreds of actually patients, gay patients, so to speak, in inverted commas, uh, d uh, during the 1990s and, uh, and 80s. And he practiced conversion therapy on many patients. What's more interesting was that he actually asked each patient to keep a diary, so keeping track of their thoughts and ideas and development of their progress, etc., etc. And the book was pretty much published, uh, pub published actually as a historical record of that treatment to show, oh yes, so this is a development of studies in Chinese homosexuality. But of course, I mean, or for many people, this would look like really barbaric and cruel. How could anyone do this? Actually, in 21st century, this is hardly uh, imaginable. However, when I really actually went into reading these diaries, I was amazed by how detailed people's accounts are. And, and the gay patients in inverted commas, again, actually wanted actually to change themselves from gay to straight. 
And then they actually used a different means to encourage themselves. Of course, the doctors, so uh, the doctors also actually helped them a lot, giving them encouragement, etc. And they also organized the so-called tea parties, bring together patients and their parents to share their stories. So from these accounts, you can't see anything wrong with this. But everybody knows actually when reading those diaries that. This is an up, really absurd practice. So this is a story. So how can we actually use today's medical standard actually in looking at practices, medical practices in the past? So that was one question and that concerns medical modernity or a particular type of belated modernity in post-socialism. But what, what's more interesting is, is that it actually provides me with actually a template of how to tra transform the self and how a liberal subjectivity can be made. So usually when we talk about self, we have in mind the kind of bourgeois individual self that uh, is what somehow actually in control of self. But this one actually offers a different model of the self, which is actually radical, which is progressive and which is politicized. Although actually the use it is the use of it actually the transformation process is very problem problematic. What fascinates me is all the political elements that is required actually to politi to politicize a liberal and neoliberal subjectivity is there, such as the use of affect, the friend enemy dichotomy, etc. etc. So the lesson I get from reading those diaries is really about how to imagine a different subjectivity that uh, departs from the liberal or neoliberal types of construction that are delineated actually in the past, especially in the Shanghai chapter, and how actually these strategies are still used by gays and lesbians, especially by gay and lesbian activists that I uh, write about in this book actually for their cultural activism or political activism. Okay, that's a good segue for us into the next two chapters, which look at, as you said, queer media activism and people who are involved in that. Uh, and you, so you have two chapters on this topic. Uh, the first one is about a particular filmmaker, Tsui uh, Tsien, and the second one is about this traveling queer film festival. So first, let's tackle that uh, portrait of a filmmaker that you have. So um, from your book, you say that you have interviewed this filmmaker and have looked at other interviews. Could you tell us uh, about the kind of work he does and the kind of ideas uh, that he has about uh, about activism in China? Mm -hmm. Yes, I met Tweets uh, and first actually uh, in Australia when he went to Australia to give a talk. And then that was when actually I was put in touch with him. And then when I visited Beijing and attended the queer film festivals and screenings that he organized, etc. And he is a really influential person in China's queer history. And he's also a great friend and a person that I really admire. Uh, the title of this chapter is called Portrait of a Filmmaker. It's pretty much like a portrait of a young artist as a young man, etc. So I'm not actually planning to write 
a chapter on his films per se. I'm not going to do a, a author studies actually to study actually styles of this author. Rather, I'm actually putting together uh, the interviews with him, quotes from him, his films and books, etc., to piece together actually the intellectual trajectory of Tzu and and to study the particular type of queer theory that he developed. What well, Tzu and uh, when he actually started making queer films, etc. I mean, his English wasn't good, and he wasn't actually systematically systematically informed about the Western queer theory, and therefore the the type of queer theorization that he engages in is actually, in a way, really interesting. I wouldn't say that it's indigenous, but it draws upon many cultural resources from Western literary theory and continental philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and Marxism. So this is quite interesting. So I, through interviewing him and uh, analyzing his works, actually, I delineate the trajectory of this this also from being a autonomous Marxist and uh, queer anarchist to actually eventually being a queer activist and uh, queer Marxist activist. So what's interesting actually is uh, in his words that he spent first uh, ten years writing novels and most his novels are really beautiful. They're written, I love them. And uh, the second ten years is spent on writing, uh, making fiction films. His fiction films mostly are very avant-garde and they use experimental filming techniques and uh, oh, or you would probably describe them as, as experimental films or avant-garde films, etc. that uh, most people couldn't understand. But in the last 10 years, the recent 10 years, he has shifted to docu documentary filmmaking and his documentary films actually address the social realities much more actually than his fiction or his uh, uh, fiction films. Uh, for instance, he made a documentary about uh, the migrant workers' children and their education, and he also made a documentary about uh, China's LGBT movements, etc. So it is actually his turn to the reality, his turn to social issues that fascinates me. Okay, what makes this? director actually changes his aesthetics and politics from avant-garde modernism actually to the more type of Marxist type of cultural politics. So that's how my inquiry started. Yeah, he's certainly an interesting figure from what you wrote about. Uh, if you don't mind, let's turn to the next chapter then where uh, it's called To the People. Uh, traveling queer film festivals. So this is um, where you write more about uh, spaces in Guangzhou and audiences there. Uh, and you looked at two screening events uh, at the China Film Festival tour. So could you tell us about uh, why this tour was happening, what its purpose was, how it was carried out, and then what kinds of conclusions did you draw from observing these screenings? Okay, so that also started actually during my field working in Beijing. I met uh, some young filmmakers, including uh, lesbian filmmaker Xu Tou Ming and uh, uh, gay filmmaker Fan Po Po. And at that time, they were organizing a queer film festival tour 
which is actually to bring their queer films to different Chinese cities and even second tier cities and countryside, etc. And they realized that first, political atmosphere in Beijing was was very strict and they didn't have much opportunities actually to engage with the local audience. And second, based upon their experience of holding festivals in Beijing, actually a lot of community members actually are not that interested in their films or they are not actually concerned with the particular type of political and cultural activism that you, you are, they are engaging in. So there is a disconnection to filmmakers and the ordinary community members. There is a need actually to connect to the community. But what is the community like? China is so big. And how do we know about what gays and lesbians in China is like? The best way is actually to bring the films and to show them actually to in different parts of China. And they are doing so, they bring their films in conjunction with uh, local LGBT centers, clubs, bars, universities, uh, campuses, etc., and show their films. And this is great because actually they actually go to talk with ordinary people from different parts of China and they've got to hear the voices and understand the life experiences as well as the diversity of the Chinese queer community. And the filmmakers have told me that after making the tour, actually, a lot of, a lot of their ideas have changed and their understanding of China, the queer issues, that the issues that Chinese gay community feel actually also changed in a way that uh, they also have to respond to these changes and revise their politics and uh, aesthetics, etc. So this seems to me to be a really interesting example of cultural practice, actually. So in which intellectuals actually bring their work to the ordinary people and then uh, the exposure to reality and the contact with ordinary people also shape their life world. And this is what the Chinese queer, uh, queer, filmmakers, uh, queer filmmakers are doing. And their works are not considered avant-garde or far from grassroots, the better connecting to the community in this way. Right. And so this is a good seg to the next chapter. Uh, comrades are also people tongzhi in mobilization, since you're talking about how intellectuals uh, are interacting with uh, normal people, ordinary pe queer people. Uh, so then you turn to an example of how ordinary queer people in China um, are thinking about uh, public spaces and their identities as queer people. Um, and you, in this seventh chapter, you look at a particular event um, in 2009, where there's this clash between five policemen and 50 gay men over the use of a public space in southern China. So could you tell us what happened there and then what kinds of uh, discussions and discourses arose from it that were interesting to you? So what happened that night was probably very coincidental. And well, a group of gay people were cruising in Guangzhou's uh, People's Park, as usual. And uh, well, usually, actually, they didn't actually confront much inter uh, police intervention. 
that that night, actually, five policemen actually went to them and say that uh, this is people's park, and you homosexuals or you gay law cannot stay here because you're not part of the people. And what's interesting was that the policemen and the cruising gay men actually had a debate of whether homosexuals are part of the people. So this is interesting, actually. There is a genealogy of the people who constitutes as proper citizens and who doesn't. There's also the struggle for the name and struggle for space, actually, in this scenario. And this incident would have been forgotten, actually, without actually the online discussion that happened afterwards. Afterwards, actually, in online discussion forums, etc., uh, queer activists were debating on should China have a stonewall type of politics? And because this is looks like, uh, on the surface, this looks exactly like how stonewall would actually start in China. It's basically confrontation between gay men and police, and then Gamer somehow took over. But there was a lot of disagreement in that many people think that in China, situation is different from the West. The Stonewall type of politics doesn't work. But meanwhile, there are some community leaders who strongly advocate a type of confrontational queer activism like the Stonewall politics. So it's the discussion that makes this event more interesting. And these discussions or similar discussions still go on today, actually, whenever actually there is a confrontation and there would be discussion of whether we should actually copy the Western politics or whether actually we should actually take into consideration local circumstances and so on and so on. So in retrospect, I think that uh, the tone of this discussion pretty much actually prepares the community for many discussions about uh, what Chinese gay identity, Chinese queer politics, and how it should relate to transnational LGBT movement, and in what way. And it clearly demonstrates that uh, Chinese queer activists, many Chinese queer activists and ordinary gay people, they are very self-reflective and they are aware of the cultural differences. But meanwhile, they are also, there is also an urgent need, actually, for acting up, for actually making changes amid the political atmosphere. Yeah, I got the sense throughout uh, your book that uh, the reaction to this idea about uh, a kind of confrontational stonewall politics uh, was not the way that many Chinese activists wanted to go, that they want to instead uh, think about the the national and the local kind of um, context and to not, I guess, um, go against any laws or, or, or go in that route. That was my sense. Yeah, sure, definitely. And I would also say that uh, what... People are more so also very aware of the historical contingency, and everybody actually thinks that China has changed a lot, despite the fact that we're not actually in a difficult situation in terms of queer activism. However, the future is going to be optimistic, and there there are going to be certain historical moments when situation could change, actually, whether through the effort of local and uh, grassroots organizations or through the 
top-down level of government reforms, etc. So there is also a lot of optimistic energy actually going on in China's queer community. Thank you for talking about your book, Queer Comrades, with us. And I'm wondering um, if you could tell us uh, what projects you're working on now. Sure, sure. I'm currently working on two book projects. The first one is tentatively titled The Queer Global South, uh, homoerotic homo imaginaries in post-socialist China, which examines all types of cultural productions, queer cultural productions in contemporary China, including art, theater, literature, film, etc. So my, if my last book actually was primarily focused on political activism, then this book that I'm currently working on is about the cultural productions and the creative energy that gay community have actually in terms of in, in terms of literature, culture, and so on. And then another project that I'm working on actually is in a way a side project from the second one, but which focuses on queer filmmaking in China. It's called the Queer Generation. Uh, they are, uh, probably it's called Queer Filmmaking in Contemporary China, in which I specifically examine China's real queer filmmaking movements and I write about actually all these queer independent filmmakers such as Cui Ziren, Fan Po Po, Xu Tou, uh, He Xiaopei, and so on, actually. They are amazing because actually they not only make interesting queer films, but also participate actively in contemporary China's uh, queer movements. So it's really actually this documentary and activism assemblage that I'm interested in, in how films actually can be used politically to articulate a radical and progressive queer politics. So that's the two projects I'm working on. Yeah, those both sound really great and they seem to come out of your, your first book really well. Okay, so I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I know that our listeners will too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laurie. I really enjoyed the talk too. Yeah, goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thank you so much, and see you next time.